everyone. I'm Lauren Consul. I'm one of the attorneys here at the New York Prosecutors Training Institute and also one of the traffic safety resource prosecutors for New York State. I'm thrilled to have Jake Nelson here today to talk with us. Uh, Jake is the Director of Traffic Safety Advocacy and Research for AAA National. And Jake, you are an epidemiologist by trade, is that right? That's right. And that doesn't mean I'm a skin doctor, <laughs> which I so, get a lot. Can you tell us what does that mean? Sure. So an epidemiologist isn't a physician at all of any kind. A practitioner who studies you know, data and research and looks for the determinants of disease, illness, or injury. And so that just basically means the factors that contribute to an injury, illness, or disease, or that serve as protective factors that help prevent those things. And so in the context of highway safety, working at AAA, I'm looking at you know, traffic crashes, injuries, and deaths as my illness or disease that we're looking to prevent. Excellent. Thank you. That's a great explanation. So what we're here to talk about today is right now we have essentially two different, arguably three bills pending to most likely during this legislative session legalize marijuana in New York State for adult recreational use. So we expect that some version of this is going to pass this year. And these versions of the bill are very different when it comes to how they treat traffic safety. What I'd like to start by asking you is over the past eight years, we've seen 14 of the U.S. states, along with Washington, D.C. and Guam, legalize marijuana for adult recreational use. As we in New York look to follow suit, why should traffic safety be such an important consideration? I think that's a fair question. We have been looking at the states that have been considering and who have since enacted legislation to legalize adult use of marijuana. And the reality is, is that very few states have data that is of high enough quality to properly analyze to get at this answer. One of the few states that does have really good data and that looked at making sure that its data systems were in place before legalizing the drug was Washington State, one of the first two to do so. And, you know, over the years, we've taken a close look at the data from that state twice now. First, we did it, you know, two years after they had legalized, comparing it to the two years before. And more recently, we looked at 10 years of data, five before and five after they legalized recreational use marijuana. And the results were essentially the same, but more importantly, they were consistent from one study to the next. And I'd say the punchline looking at those data is that the proportion of fatal crashes in which the driver had recently used marijuana, meaning active THC or the psychoactive element of the drug was present in the blood of those drivers, doubled after legalization as compared to the data from before. And so that doesn't mean that double the crashes occurred or double the fatalities occurred. It means that recent marijuana use among drivers involved in these crashes became a much more significant contributing factor to these fatal crashes and the people who died in those crashes. So what can we do in crafting our legislation and being ready for this legalization to deter people from driving under the influence of marijuana, particularly once it is legal? Because unfortunately, sometimes legal will lead people to believe that something is more safe. So how can we try to combat that idea? Well, that's a good question. And alcohol and cannabis are wildly different drugs in all kinds of ways that you and I could nerd out on for a whole hour. And maybe we'll get into that in a little bit here. But 
I think that we can look to alcohol as an example in some ways, but we should steer clear of trying to compare cannabis to alcohol in other really important ways. In terms of comparing them in a constructive way, you know, I think it's fair to think about, you know, first of all, alcohol is a drug. We don't think of alcohol as a drug, but it is a drug and it is legal for adult use. And there are a whole host of policies and other sorts of interventions that have been created that function to prevent alcohol-impaired driving crashes, injuries, and deaths through deterrence. Those things include sobriety checkpoints, high-visibility enforcement, behavior change campaigns like over-the-limit under arrest, and I could go on and list more. My point in sharing that example is that, you know, you can look at cannabis and recognize that it's a wildly different drug from alcohol. And in some cases, you can sort of steal the same countermeasures used for alcohol, but you have to massage them and apply them somewhat differently for this different drug. And so one you know, easy example might be sobriety checkpoints. So I think you, know, you probably know after all these years working in highway safety, when most alcohol-impaired driving episodes occur, evenings and weekends, right? That isn't necessarily the case for cannabis, and it would change even again for opioids. And so understanding the drug that you're trying to deter use in driving on and understanding when people are most apt or likely to use that drug before they get behind the wheel and applying a countermeasure like a sobriety checkpoint during those times would help you to better deter use of that drug and then getting behind the wheel, you know, and the times when it's most likely to happen. So that's a really easy example. And there are many more ways that we could employ policies traditionally used for alcohol-impaired driving prevention for drugs other than alcohol, cannabis included, just by applying them a little bit differently, recognizing the differences between the drugs. Absolutely. I would agree with that. And one of the things that I am asked often is, in relation to what you just said, is why can't we just have a per se level the way that we do for alcohol, for example, a 0.08? And I answer that question probably differently than you would because of my different background, but what would you say to that? That's a fair one and an important question because the last thing we want to do is establish well-meaning public policy that has unintended consequences that fail to address the problem that we're trying to solve for and create a new one. And establishing a per se standard for any drug other than alcohol, cannabis is the one we're talking about today, is not supported by data and research. And I'll explain why. So when we use a portable breath testing device or more commonly known as a breathalyzer, when a law enforcement uses a breathalyzer at the roadside, once they have probable cause, at least someone's been driving while impaired by alcohol or under the influence of alcohol, that produces a number, an estimate of the concentration of alcohol in that motorist's blood. And what gives that number its power in terms of predicting impairment is that there's a large body of research evidence that allows us to estimate how impaired somebody is or the odds they will cause a traffic crash even based on how much of the alcohol, what the concentration of alcohol is in that individual's blood. That dose-response relationship is established for only alcohol, and it has not been established for any other drug except alcohol. And what that means at the end of the day is, while there are technologies already in the field and available to us now that could allow us to understand that someone has active THC in their blood at the roadside 
and maybe even the concentration of active THC in that, in that individual's blood at the roadside, because we don't understand the relationship between concentration of that drug in someone's body fluids and the odds that they will cause a traffic crash or how impaired they're going to be. We can't make predictions about impairment. So this number that shows the presence of cannabis or any other drug for that matter, the exception being alcohol, whether it's at the roadside or from a laboratory for confirmation purposes, it allows us only to prove recent use. And it doesn't allow us by itself, the number only, doesn't allow us to make conclusions about impairment. That's where traditional police work becomes really important. You know, was the person driving as if they were impaired? When you did the standard field sobriety test, did their performance indicate impairment? Could you smell alcohol or cannabis or whatever else? You know, all of the things that matter, the good traditional police work, this is the real evidence of the crime. And a lab test or a test collected at the roadside for a drug like cannabis is one additional piece of evidence that allows us to say this person clearly was impaired. Maybe they had alcohol, maybe they didn't on board. But we have evidence of this crime and we have a lab test or a roadside screening result that indicates recent use of a drug known to cause impairment. All of that taken together is what would help to adjudicate an impaired driver, whether it involves cannabis only or cannabis and some combination of other drugs like alcohol. So with alcohol, if we have enough information, we can do retrograde extrapolation, which allows you to calculate an estimated BAC for a person hours before a test based on the available information and that test reading. I'm frequently asked why we cannot do this for drugs other than alcohol, and my short answer to this is that alcohol is the only drug that is eliminated from the body in a linear fashion. But there are additional considerations, particularly with cannabis, in that there is not the same relationship established between drug presence and impairment. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would agree with that. And I would go one step further just to say that even if the relationship wasn't linear, we could still calculate it backwards if that relationship were consistent at the population level. The problem is the challenge for drugs other than alcohol is, one, the relationship isn't linear. It's a curve, and the curve looks different for all different kinds of users. And so whether you're a man or a woman, and less related to being a man or a woman, and the real underlying issue with gender is ratio of body fat to body muscle and how frequently you use the drug matters. If you're a medicinal user and you use it all the time, you're going to have fairly high levels of active THC in your blood, and you will have developed some level of tolerance to it. If you're in, you know, a more of a recreational or intermittent user or you're a first-time user, you can have very little active THC in your blood and be super impaired. And so establishing a per se standard for a drug like cannabis or more specifically active THC, you know, the chemical that causes impairment, runs the risk of potentially convicting people who were driving with, you know, levels of active THC at or above whatever that established per se standard or threshold is who aren't legitimately impaired at all. They've just built up such a tolerance that they're not impaired. Their ability to operate that motor vehicle is not impaired, period. And then on the flip side, you could have somebody who has used it for the first time or they just rarely use, and they have a level of active THC below that established per se threshold for a particular state. And they're wildly impaired, but because their blood level of that 
chemical, that drug is below the threshold, getting a conviction for impaired driving is going to be hard, even though they are impaired. And so it's just, it's a sloppy public policy. And I trust that the intent of it is good. It's to provide law enforcement and the courts a tool to adjudicate impaired drivers or impaired driving suspects, but it just doesn't work for drugs other than alcohol. And that's really hard for, I think, people to accept. Absolutely, it is. And one of the things that I always emphasize when I get that question is that observations of impairment really are crucial for these prosecutions. And particularly in New York State, we right now, as the law stands, we actually have to prove not only that the person was impaired while they were driving, but we actually have to prove exactly which drug impaired them. And that drug has to be on a particular list. And my understanding is that we are one of the few states who still has a list like this. So these prosecutions are really challenging. And to make our roads safer, what are some tools that are out there that we could use and, you know, potentially make important in the legislative process or other processes that go on to legalize marijuana? Yeah, I mean, these drug impaired driving cases, whether or not they involve alcohol as well, you're right. They're challenging to try anyway. Adjudication of drug driving suspects is really tough in general. And so public policies that make it that much more challenging only work against the goal of highway safety, right? I'd say that, you know, if lawmakers in a state, in this case, New York state, have a legitimate interest in protecting the health and safety of people who use the transportation system. And they want to prevent impaired drivers from getting behind the wheel of a car, regardless of what drug is impairing them. Impaired driving is the crime, right? The law needs to be written to allow us to address impaired driving generally. And that means alcohol, that means cannabis, it means other scheduled substances or drugs, sort of regulated by the federal government, but it also includes prescribed and over-the-counter medicines. These are drugs hopefully used to treat or manage health conditions, oftentimes recommended or prescribed by a person's primary care physician, which is not permission to drive while impaired by them. And so I know that we're talking about cannabis today, but I use the the example of prescribed and over-the-counter medicines just to illustrate this point that we can't be prescriptive in our public policy when it comes to impaired driving. It's just not factually true that only a small list of drugs can cause driver impairment. And I'll use an example from a different state. In the state of Florida, used to be the case, and I I, honestly am not sure if it's still the case, but it for sure used to be the case that if you were impaired by Ambien, you know, you used Ambien and got behind the wheel of a car and you fell asleep while driving and injured or killed somebody, or let's say you didn't, let's just say that you were weaving all over the road and clearly there was some sort of impairment going on. The officer stops and long story short, we learned that it was Ambien. And this is a, a drug that when it does what it's supposed to do, forces you to sleep against your will. You are wildly impaired while asleep. <laughs> I mean, even if you're just tired and driving, you're impaired. But in that, in the state of Florida for a long time, you couldn't be convicted of impaired driving simply because of a technicality in the law, which is the example that you just shared about New York State. If it's not on a short list, you can't be convicted for driver impairment, as if only the drugs on that list can cause impairment. It's just irresponsible public policymaking. And I don't believe that people 
established these laws with the goal of irresponsibility in mind. I think that for a long time, it was, you know, the federally regulated or controlled substances, the illicit illegal drugs that were included in many state laws. But we've come a long way since then. And I think there's a general recognition and well-established agreement among experts in the field and the legal system and in the academic community that there's a long list of drugs that can impair drivers and even synthetic drugs that are changing so rapidly that even forensic toxicology labs can't keep up with the ability to test for them. And so if that's the environment that we're operating in now, we're doing ourselves a huge disservice to write our laws or to allow our laws to continue to exist in a way that limits, you know, convicting somebody of a crime called impaired driving if and only if the drug that was impairing them is one of a short list of drugs in state statute. That's just a reckless, irresponsible way to allow public policy to persist. And I think we have an ethical and moral obligation to change the law to meet the times. And I think we know better now, and it's time to change. And many, arguably most states, have already learned that lesson and made the changes. Now, when you say that other states have made the changes, would you say that, from in your knowledge, New York is in the minority in having this short list? Yeah. So, and I know this only because AAA, working with the AAA Foundation, recently did an audit of state statutes. And the goal of the audit was to understand how we could improve data quality and availability as it relates to drug impaired driving generally, not specific to cannabis. And in going through that exercise, we looked at the impaired driving statute. And we were looking for things like whether the use of oral fluid to detect drugs was authorized in the state statute. And also how impaired driving is defined in state statutes. And our goal was to articulate, like, what are the opportunities within states to improve statute to better produce higher quality data on drug driving? And so part of the exercise shed some light that there are only about eight states in the country, New York is one of them, that has the short list of drugs that can impair you. And so these are the only drugs you can be convicted for impaired driving on. And I think it's almost embarrassing. If I were a lawmaker in New York State and I had a legitimate, sincere interest in preventing impaired drivers from the public roadways in my state, that's one of the first things that I would change because it's just ridiculous to assume that, you know, a list of 10 to 15 drugs are the only drugs that can impair a driver. The list is pages long. And so rather than articulating and listing all of those drugs or even just drug classes, it makes more sense to define impaired driving in terms of, you know, any substance that can impair one's ability to safely operate a motor vehicle to the slightest degree. And there are dozens of versions of that kind of state statute, but you get the point. The point is to recognize that there are many, many drugs that can impair In the world of prescribed and over-the-counter drugs, there are many drugs that, when used by themselves, cause zero impairment, but when combined with one other or two other substances, can be wildly impairing. And in that particular case, assuming that people are using these drugs medically for therapeutic reasons, they're not doing that knowing that they're putting themselves and others at risk. But it's still a crime, and it's their responsibility to separate the need to use these medicines from when they need to drive safely. Absolutely. And along the lines of deterrence, again, right now, 
We have had a couple of small pilot programs regarding oral fluid testing, but I know there's been a lot done in other states. Uh, What can you tell us about that? And is that a helpful deterrent? Because there's a couple of myths actually out there that seem to be pretty pervasive. And one is that driving under the influence of marijuana is safer than driving under the influence of alcohol. And the other uh, issue that we've seen is that because of some of the things that we've already discussed, drivers don't think that they'll be caught as easily under the influence of cannabis or other drugs as they would with alcohol, again, because of the lack of some of the tools that we have to use for alcohol. Any input about oral fluid or other deterrent mechanisms that would be helpful? Yeah. I mean, I would add to your list of myths that you've heard, one that I've heard in some of our own survey work of motorists is that, you know, we do a survey called the Traffic Safety Culture Index every year, and we ask motorists about a whole range of highway safety issues, and impaired driving is just one of many. In that section of the survey, we learned that there's about 10% of the national motorist population believe that using cannabis actually makes them safer than driving sober which blows my mind. So here's what I know. I know without hesitation that conservatively using marijuana and getting behind the wheel of a car at least doubles your odds of causing a traffic crash. So that I can say without hesitation, and that is a conservative estimate. Depending on how much alcohol somebody has in their body, they could be less or more likely than double to cause a traffic crash. That depends on how much alcohol you've consumed. The other thing I'd say is even if you've not used a ton of marijuana before you drive, if you combine it with even a little bit of alcohol, you are wildly impaired. It produces a level of impairment greater than what you would achieve by just adding the amount of impairment from alcohol alone and cannabis alone. You're sort of like that amount plus more because of the interaction of those two drugs. And you know, you weave in or layer on top of that the kinds of things that you and I talked about just a moment ago, the differences in impairment based on attributes of who you are, whether you have a lot of muscle, a lot of fat, whether you're a chronic or an intermittent user, the concentration, you've, whether you've inhaled it or you've ingested it as an edible, these are all things that factor into that. So yes, I think that also through our survey work, we know that about 70% of Americans who drive our active drivers believe that they will not get caught by police if they drive within an hour of using marijuana. And that's a really dangerous assumption to make if you care about going to jail. (laughs) Because while it's true that detecting and adjudicating cannabis impaired drivers is more challenging, it's no less likely, right? The challenge has to do with the result of a little screening test you can do at the roadside and what you can conclude based on that number. Everything else is the same. You know, you can smell the drug just like you can smell alcohol. You can, as a police officer driving behind somebody who's under the influence of cannabis, can look for signs and symptoms of impairment, like an inability to maintain lane positioning. So you're weaving within your lane or hugging one side. There is a myth out there that cannabis impaired drivers tend to drive more slowly. And that's actually not true. Speeding is one of the most common factors in those kinds of police stops. So I think, you know, people operate on a set of assumptions that are incorrect. And through 
you know, the ability to screen a driver for the presence of one or more drugs through, you know, the use of oral fluid screening at roadside is one really useful tool. So that can help, you know, confirm recent use of one or more drugs, cannabis being one of them. Of course, the result of that screen at the roadside can't be used in court. In a pair driving case, you would collect a second sample and send it to the lab. That result is what would go to court. So, and I think a lot of people get that wrong, right? You know, they believe that the roadside oral screening technology that's out there today, it's not always accurate. And that's true, but it's not that result that is used in your case. And I know that you know that, but just for the benefit of your listeners, just wanted to highlight that. So, you know, one of the greatest benefits of using oral fluid in this scenario is that it allows you to get a result, whether it's the screening result at roadside or the result that you get from the lab, using a sample collected super close to the time that the person was actually driving. And this is really important because when we collect blood for that same purpose, it's typically two or more hours after the initial stop. And for a drug like cannabis, where active THC, the psychoactive element of that drug, is metabolized very rapidly by our bodies, two hours could mean the difference of that result coming back from the laboratory below whatever the established per se threshold in that state is. And usually that's what happens. And the most ironic part of what I just shared with you is that when the amount of active THC in someone's blood or oral fluid drops below that level, typically occurs at right about the same time that impairment has reached its peak. And why that is, is because active THC or cannabis just more generally is a fat soluble drug. It's not water soluble like alcohol. So when we're impaired, we're impaired when that drug reaches our brain. And for alcohol being a water-soluble drug, the amount of alcohol in our blood is the same amount of alcohol that is in our brain because it's water-soluble. It can pass through the blood-brain barrier easily, back and forth. For cannabis or active THC, it's fat-soluble. So the amount of active THC in our blood doesn't match the amount of active THC in the fatty tissues in our body, including the fatty tissues of our brain. And for a drug like that, that sort of lives in our fat cells, it's absorbed by the fat cells slowly, and then it's released back out into the bloodstream and then absorbed again. And over time, it eventually disappears out of our body. But that's why trying to collect the amount of active THC in our, our blood or in our oral fluid at roadside and trying to use the number that we get as the result to make a prediction about impairment is bad policy. Because what we'd have to actually collect is a fatty tissue sample from the brain. And I don't know about you, Lauren, but I don't see that happening anytime soon. Uh, no, <laughs> nor, nor should it. No, I definitely don't see that happening. And I think that the tools that we do have, we just, I suppose, need to make the best of. One of the big problems that we have in New York, other than the list, and I will say that the list is pretty extensive, but it still does not encompass all of the substances that can impair people. So again, it, you know, no matter how yeah. long it gets, it's still not long enough. Um, and, and, and just one more point on that, Lauren, is even if that list could be adjusted to include a majority of the drugs seen on the roads in New York State, it's inevitable before it has to be updated again. And lawmakers need to be focusing their attention on evolving issues, not 
having to go back to keep fixing the same policy over time as new drugs emerge. So, you know, they themselves would be well served to create a more generic definition, as we've discussed. Absolutely. I would agree with that. And also, we know the presence of synthetic drugs is growing, has been growing for years in the United States. And we know that as soon as, you know, one particular compound, I believe, would be the right term for it. I'm not a chemist, but when one compound is made illegal, often they make a slight tweak to it and then it's just as impairing, maybe more so, and, you know, no longer illegal. So that is another reason I think that broadening the definition of drug would absolutely help us more effectively prosecute impaired drivers. The other challenge, which touches on some of the other things that we just spoke about, is that in New York State currently, we cannot get a warrant for a blood draw under the vehicle and traffic law unless there is a crash and serious personal injury or death to someone other than the driver. So that makes it extremely challenging, again, because we have to prove what drug the person is impaired by, but we can't get a warrant for their blood. And as we know, blood is sort of the gold standard when it comes to testing for drugs. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, that kind of blows my mind a little bit. You know, what's the law like in New York State around attempted murder? If no one's actually murdered, are you allowed to try somebody for attempted murder? We are. I think most people in highway safety and most national, reputable, trusted safety advocacy organizations, AAA included, would call impaired driving a murder in progress. And just because somebody isn't injured or killed isn't a reason not to convict them of that crime. That's a very interesting analogy that I absolutely have heard in the traffic safety community, but I don't know is widely known or accepted. So one other tool that I'm aware of for dealing with this problem of deterrence and, you know, letting people know that we are trying actively to keep our roads safe is funding for drug recognition experts and also A-RIDE trained officers. Is that something that should be considered important when crafting marijuana legislation? Absolutely. So, you know, the drug recognition expert training program or, you know, drug evaluation classification program, which trains DREs. So that is, I would argue, one of our best tools in the fight against drug impaired driving when looking at drugs other than alcohol. And these are law enforcement officers, as you know, Lauren, who are able to predict with over 90 percent accuracy the category or categories of drugs responsible for an observed impairment. And it's one of the most rigorous law enforcement training programs that exists. Most law enforcement officers who are interested in becoming DREs are either not qualified to participate in the training or won't make it through the training and pass the certification. That's how rigorous it is. It's standardized, which means that regardless of what state in the United States, what country on the globe it exists or is employed as a program, it is taught and managed and implemented and applied in exactly the same way everywhere and for good reason. So yes, I think the more DREs that a state can have within law enforcement, the better off the health and safety of motorists will be. That said, we also need to recognize that not all law enforcement officers are good candidates for this rigorous training program and not all law enforcement officers who are able to 
successfully become certified in the program are interested in it. And so that's where A-Ride comes in because that's sort of a step down from the DRE program. And that's something that, you know, all law enforcement officers who have patrol responsibilities after about a year of real world experience patrolling would be fantastic candidates to sit through the A-Ride training. This is sort of like DRE light. So it doesn't allow you to predict the drug or drugs that could be responsible for the observed impairment, but it does allow a patrol officer to look for signs and symptoms of drug impairment. Enough to be able to call a DRE to assist on a case if that's what he or she observes. And so it's a really powerful training for the masses within law enforcement, whereas you know the DRE training is for a select, highly qualified group. So together, I think that that would be a really important part of a decision to legalize a drug known to cause impairment among drivers. Thank you very much. And I think we've covered most of the points that we wanted to talk about today. But any final words of advice or wisdom for us? And if you have any data too to dispel this myth, I know that a lot of people are concerned that broadening the definition of drug will result in people being unjustly prosecuted. Is there any data or evidence in other states? Because by my calculation, probably 40 plus other states don't have this list that we have. Any data to support that that's the case? Anything you can tell us about that? Yeah, that's not been shown to be true in any state that has a more general definition of impaired driving or the drugs that can cause impairment. So, you know, I think any claim along the lines of what you just shared would be circumstantial or anecdotal and not at all supported by any data or research that I've seen. And while I'm responsible for a wide variety of highway safety advocacy issues at AAA, impaired driving takes up most of my time. And I would absolutely be aware of any such data in the course of my work. And I've, I've just not seen it. Thank you very much, Jake. I really appreciate your time today. And hopefully this will be helpful to our audience. And I really appreciate you sharing your knowledge with us. Hey, Lauren, thank you so much for the chat. It was interesting. I always enjoy nerding out with another highway safety person. So thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. Appreciate it.